Hey there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on today's Wandering DMs, we're going to be discussing our lessons from our experiences playing war games, such as Chainmail or Warhammer or Battle System or our own Book of War system, actually. Um, and we'll be asking the question, how can that deepen and improve your D&D games? All that and more today on Wandering DMs. But before we get into that, I'll just remind everyone that, as always, uh, at the end of the show, we will be hosting our after-party chat. Uh, that is an hour-long video chat that happens on our private Discord, available to patrons only. So if you would like to join in in that uh, about an hour from now, you can do so. Just visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingdms and donate at any tier level, and you'll get access. Definitely do that. We'll look forward to seeing you there on our Discord server. So this might possibly be a day that highlights the contrasting styles of Paul and myself, potentially, and certainly I dig deeply into the wargaming with our uh, Thursday night uh, Book of War playtest that we continue here with uh, Dan Cullen. And, and you know, I'm that, that constantly... Is that difference of opinion, uh, perhaps, is subconsciously uh, what, what, what drove our wardrobe selections for today, Dan? <laughs> oh, oh, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Oh, I had, oh, how I had noticed that. Oh, my goodness. What a, what a, what a fabulous... Synchronization yeah. with our theme today. Good thinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I'm playing war games all the time on Thursdays, and a lot of my uh, personal design work is, uh, you know, interfacing at that level quite a bit. Actually, I, I work on the the war game design. I work on the the OED uh, role playing design, how the war game works, and how the spells work, and back and forth like that. And they're they're definitely for me. They're definitely the the two game forms are definitely attached at the hip. And um, I'm so glad that you were willing to talk about this Paul, today, Paul, because I think last week, I think the last thing that was said was you got in one parting shot was, well, and of course, last week was our, our great discussion about morale rules um, in D&D. Um, and I think your parting shot was, well, I mean, in this discussion, we're talking about D&D, the role-playing game, which has nothing to do with war games, um, which was your parting shot. And I will remind the viewers that, of course, if you go back to uh, the original D&D box set, and of course, we know that Paul was joking about that. Um, if you go back to the original D&D box set, of course, the label on the thing does say that it's rules for fantastic medieval war games campaigns playable with paper and pencil and miniature figures, if you so choose. And of course, we know that this was at a point before the term role-playing games was really invented for this kind of game form. So uh, yeah, D&D uh, was originally literally on the cover uh rules for war games so it i think it bears i think it bears mind to touch fast back on that and think about what what works nowadays and what doesn't work i mean certainly there's no denying that that D, &D was born out of war gaming right and the original edition points back to chainmail for a lot of inspiration um you know that's uh you just our whole discussion last week was about morale uh, a mechanic that it makes incredible amount of sense in a war game. And then when it translates over to a, a, a small party action game like D&D, &D, then we start to question, how is that supposed to work? 
uh, and it maybe is slightly less obvious fit. Um, so it's interesting, I think now, like there's a little bit of this sort of, uh, I don't know, like, you know, the, the snake eating its own tail here of, you know, w when do it, when do we feed back into the war game from our role playing game? And then as we cycle back and forth between playing both styles of games, how can one inform the other versus where they actually very different and, and you should emphasize the differences rather than the similarities. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, I'm excited to dig into this. Yeah, good, good, good way of looking at it. And I will say that, um, you know, this is this is certainly connected to our discussion last week, because uh, I think that, you know, the morale rules are, you know, one of the highlights for me of things that I was able to refine and understand better uh, digging into the war game play. And, you know, that was that was a point that Paul and I have slight different opinion about from last week is I like having uh, the mechanics for morale still in my D&D games. And specifically what I've refined in Book of War is exactly the same mechanic that I use in D&D now. And I didn't, that wasn't always the case. Um, so let's, let's, I dig into, yeah. let's dig into Book of War just a little bit more, just, just in case there are folks watching this who don't totally know, Dan. What, what is Book of War? Um, you know, what, what, what motivated you to develop it? Why? Uh... You know, so where do they see it on the I, channel? So, Give us the highlights. As a kid, so Book of War is is my uh, version of a mass war game that uses D and D characters and monsters. And uh, you know, growing up, I was always super enticed by the references in the D and D books, the D and D expert book and uh, first edition and things like that, that would reference like, okay, at this level, your characters get to this level and they'll certainly be hiring armies of mercenaries. They'll be building a castle. You'll have, you know, wars happening and you need to go to our, you know, other products of the time to handle that. And, um, you know, obviously the game comes out of chain mail. The personally, the first, little brown book that I got, right? I didn't actually get my hands on that white box set for, for many decades, actually. The first little brown book that I got was Swords and Spells, which is technically a Dungeons and Dragons, right? Original Dungeons and Dragons branded supplement, right? For use with, you know, Dungeons and Dragons before you had the advanced or first edition or anything like that in there. And I tried playing this and was highly disappointed, frankly. Um, it, it's so enticing. It's so close. It just, it's just so close to being a good game. And the mechanics of the actual combat are un, like a really surprising, unbelievable drag. You get your armies on the table, move them around. That's all great. Give them in contact, start fighting. And all of a sudden it's a huge drag. And, you know, some years later, they, they came out with battle system right in the advanced D&D era. And it's so close, right? And I tried it. I tried playing it, and it and it's so close. And you get into the combat, and there's this giant, complicated table, and you need to keep track of different dice that you're rolling on the table, and it, it doesn't quite work. And you know, we had in, in our campaign, our D and D campaigns, Paul. You know, I started running high level adventures like Gygax's Isle of the Ape, right? And the very first thing that happens, you land on this exotic extra dimensional island with dinosaurs and King Kong and everything, and you get jumped by an army of natives. How do you run it? I don't know, it's unclear, <laughs> right? And so, uh, so ultimately, um, you know, Book of War is, is my attempt at the solution. And I was thinking about that and I was troubled by that for decades. 
of like, why do these things not quite work properly at the table in, in my experience? And so Book Wars is my solution to that. And um, with, with this, I've been very happy and it works very smoothly. And I've been able to get people that aren't hardcore war gamers into D&D wargaming and the D&D rules interface very smoothly. You can basically, the conversion is just completely obvious what you need to do. And uh, it's, it's, we've, it's, it's, you know, I know I made it, but it's one of my most enjoyable games. I really, I really like getting an opportunity to play it with people and I don't get tired of it. So that is, that's what Book of War is. Nice, nice. So um, how, how often have you had the chance to actually integrate it with a, a running D&D campaign? Well, that's a great question. Um, sometimes, you know, we had an episode, I think, last season um, about how to run the large number of opponents um, that show up in classic D&D, like you're wandering mm -hmm. through the wilderness and, and, and what the book says is you're, you're going to get jumped by 40 to 400 men or orcs or goblins. How do you run that? So uh, sometimes I just do that uh, theater of the mind. Like I know what the one page of mechanics are for Book of War. So I just roll some dice for the mass fighting that's happening and then highlight my player characters from round to round. So that's how I do it. And then of course, one of the major highlights of my gaming has been when you uh, worked it into your D&D uh, campaign as a uh, climactic moment and i get to come over and and play the play the enemies so that was actually that it, your campaign is actually one of my personal <laughs> highlights for you for working with that and it worked really well i, have, I think i have uh, i have an image here of uh this is the the was posted on my blog as the uh, siege of uh not, sorry the battle of restenford um which for anybody who's knows the original module uh bone hill uh which is l1 um that's uh when i when i was running my longest running dnd campaign i started with that module and rest for the town that it begins and became our home base uh and we we brought that well beyond the content of the module um and so eventually in the just through the organic rolling out of events uh the town got besieged by an army of uh hobgoblins and um and we, we played it out. And and actually, uh, this is, I think, one of the more enjoyable photos I have of it, just because uh, there's there's a lot of maps out there of Restonford. And maybe if you look carefully, you can tell that this it was actually an attempt to really model that that, that town. Um, and I think you can see maybe in the center there that there's a tree that's on fire, which is great. We actually, the, 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 the outcome of the Book of War game uh, actually had significant impact, not only on the plot of the, of the campaign, but of the, the terrain, what happened, you know, in that world. There was, you know, pieces of the town got burnt down. I believe at the end of it, actually, what happened was that the players eventually had to retreat with the remaining defenders into the tower. And so it became that the, the town was overrun by the enemy. Uh, but there was a bastion, uh, a holdout in the in the castle. Kind of, I couldn't crazy. quite get them. I was so I was so close. I was so close, and I couldn't quite seal the deal um, on that. And it, it's funny. I mean, this was years ago, but I still remember this like ferocious fight where uh, my forces managed to knock down part of the town wall, and then the town wizard just happened to have a wall of fire spell. I think to block it off, and I was like, crap. 
Now what do I do? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's, that's that is a great that's a line. Yeah, yeah, and it was interesting too because this is my favorite thing, honestly, of 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 this level of of play was that we're we're basically. Um, you know, it wasn't set up in advance. We weren't like looking for an excuse to play a war game, right? Like it, it, it happened that the campaign reached a point where a large scale battle should occur. And so we said, great, let's resolve it with Book of War. And then the events in the war game then twisted things in a weird and interesting way. So we had to like, okay, now we're in this weird state where the good guys are holed up in this castle and there's, you know, roving bands of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, villains kind of out there in the town. I think that's a great insight. And I feel like that's why, you know, I've wanted, you know, uh, a, a turnkey solution because that's exactly how it always pops up for me. You could have a, a large batch of wandering monsters or, you know, you happen to write a plot where the dungeon is organizing an invasion. Your players are supposed to foil it and they fail. And, the, and the, the monsters actually do manage to organize an invasion. What do you do now? Um, there's that famous, um, you know, adventure, uh, Death Frost Doom, right? Mm. Okay, spoiler. Um, you know, you go into this horrible, horrific dungeon, and if things don't work right, it pours forth a, a, an enormous legion of undead a, a, over the countryside. And it doesn't have any. It doesn't have any way of, of concluding that once that happens. So there's a lot of there's a lot of cases in D and D whereby the players fundamentally fail to stop the you know extra dimensional invasion. You didn't plan for it. What do you do now? And that that tends to be how it pops up quite a bit. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's. it's uh... So it's it's nice, um, and like you said, like the the existing systems that 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 are out there for playing war games, technically set in a D and D world, kind of fall short, right? All the existing ones. I guess the, I guess uh, give me give me more on that, Dan. Like what in what ways do those things not quite work? Well, the ones that I mentioned before, the the fund the problem with swords and spells mechanic, and and largely, you know, swords and spells is basically the chainmail uh, movement ranges uh, turn system more or less, and then just mm -hmm. swap out the um, the dice that chainmail uh, use for for combat, which doesn't handle fantasy monsters whatsoever. Um, swap it out for uh, take a calculator and compute average damage. You have to. You just have to keep for every unit. You have to keep a grand total of all the hit points. So I don't know if I have a group of a hundred orcs in this system. Uh, I have a piece of paper tracking that they have <clears throat> four hundred and fifty hit points, and uh, your forces come and attack them, and you do mm, average of I don't know four point five times ten uh, times point six for the armor times the number of figures, and subtract that from the four hundred and fifty hit points. Uh, take my pencil, do a little calculator work, scratch it off. That's even for me. That's not very enjoyable. I don't know about you, Paul, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but every single combat totally deterministic, no random nature whatsoever. Just comparing average hit point input output uh, was like, that's eh, not. It's it's slow. It's cruddy. How am I possibly going to entice people to play with me? Right with with a system yeah. like that. And the problem, in my opinion, with with um, with with battle, okay, so battle system version one is just this ridiculously complicated table that you have to 
do a lot of number crunching, just all kinds of number crunching, and then have, you know, and, and then it, it winds up, you, you need like D8, D10, D12, you need a D14 and a D16 and a D18 that don't exist. And there's some, like, I don't even know, I don't even know what starts happening there. And then Battle System version two, right? Clearly people weren't happy with that because totally ripped this out. Battle ver Battle System version two comes out, totally ripped that out, totally completely different uh, system in which you have to, for every different attack, you have to keep track of different dice on the unit and you actually wind up having to roll separately for every single figure. You can't just roll a giant batch of dice like you can in mm. Chainmail or Warhammer or something like that. Um, and then that becomes incredibly slow and incredibly um, complicated. Yeah, that's so. I mean, there's an interesting push pull here between the 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 desire for the game to be, you know, approachable, right? Like you want the mechanics to be easy to understand, quick to play, right? On the other hand, you want it to mesh well with D and D, so that if my character is present at this battle, we know how that works. Right, 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 exactly. And I think that we were, you know, in one of our D&D campaigns, right, our friend Scott, obviously, is a huge uh, Warhammer uh, fan, historically. And, uh, you know, our third edition D&D campaign turned into a, a mass battle. And uh, what Scott did is he pulled out Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. I can't remember what edition it might have been. It might have been sixth edition like this, like I have here, maybe. Um, and um, and I asked, right, I asked now, are player characters who are fourth or fifth level, how do they stack up numerically against these figures? And I, if I, this is a long time ago, and I apologize if my memory's bad. And Scott, I think Scott was like, we just don't worry about it. We, yeah. we just, we just simply do not worry about what the, what the scaling or how we, I don't even know how many creatures one of these figures represents. We simply do not worry about that. And I remember that day and being like, it would, I would really like an answer to that. I would like a system that had a specific answer to that. And that was another stream that fed into my, you know, what I wanted to see for my, my D&D Wargaming. Right, right. I'll, I'll show another picture from that, um, that Restenford uh, game. You can kind of see here that uh, in, the, in the distance near the top of the photo on the hill, there is a single lone spellcasting figure, which I believe is the sorcerer Peltar, who is statted in the in the module, and I believe we actually sat down, Dan, and spent some time being like, "Okay, well, it's how does how is he going to work in the war game?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, and exactly. the interesting thing I think too is when you right, so so this is this kind of teases out some of the fact that like well, the origins of D and D are war games because there are certain spells when we dig into it, like Wall of Fire, that just make a lot more sense in a war game than they do in I don't know. Wall fires maybe a port. Maybe that's still a pretty decent spell in your in your D and D game, but it's it's close though because you know where Wall of Fire comes from <laughs> is from a, a Conan story, um, and I'm I, I'm gonna I could look it up if I had five minutes exactly what it is, but there's a Conan story in which it's specifically used in a mass war game. In a mass, I'm sorry, it's <laughs> that's a story. It's not a game, obviously. In a mass battle in which Conan is leading a you know a, a large army of troops against an evil army. And before, right before Conan's cavalry charges, the enemy wizard uh, takes a chariot, uh, throws down a line of white power powder, and then when the cavalry run over it, it blows up into a wall of fire. So that actually, wall of fire is a great example of something that was clearly inspired by 
uh, a story involving involving a, a cavalry charge in a war. Mm-hmm. We've got. And in, uh, I, I see some chat showing up in the in the chat here, where uh, folks are starting to pick apart. Well, what are they? What are the spells that are really out there, right? That really kind of push the, the boundaries uh, that make a lot more sense, maybe in a war game than in D anD. d And we've got some great uh, examples in there. You know, move Earth, uh, hallucinatory terrain. Uh, anything? Anything else jump out at you, Dan, from your experience now having translated stuff back and forth? Yeah, and you know, one of our one of our patrons in the after chat I, some weeks ago was uh, our patron Hobo Ogre um, said something that's just been living rent free in my head ever since. Of and at least in Book of War, I, I focus specifically on what in original D&D is the top level spells. So six, so I actually only deal with six level spells, and uh, in particular, their control weather, their move Earth, like you guys mentioned. There's lower water, like William mentioned in the chat right there. Um, there's, uh, you know, just, there's, ma- there's death spell, which basically only works against masses of lower level creatures, uh, disintegrate anti-magic spell. And so what Hobo Ogre said was these, these spells that you're using, um, control weather, move earth, lower water. I spent my entire, you know, gaming career with D and D going, this is junk. Why are these spells at the top level? They're junk. I would never use them. Who would ever possibly use them? And all of a sudden, when you guys start using them in the war game, they're they're cool. They're 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 cool. Yeah. They're fun. They make a big difference. They're super dramatic, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off that these make a big, uh, th- these make a lot of sense uh, outdoors mm-hmm. at long range in the mass warfare game. And so I I kind of love that observation. I totally agree with that. And um, uh, I, I I have been happy to. To 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 interact with that, rediscover how how cool those top level spells are, and kind of refine them and make sure that I'm using them right in the mass war game. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I mean, you I'll and pick I, one I, one example. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, go on. So like, so for one example, it's come up in the last couple of weeks. Is in uh, original D and D and chainmail, um, and it's funny because because I, I wouldn't have even been aware of the specifics of the language, but like in in in. Um, uh, let's see here. In original D and D, the the language for the move Earth spell, as I pull it up here, says um, when above ground, the magic user may utilize the spell to move prominences, prominences such as hills or ridges. And now, when I started working move Earth into my war game, I kind of was like, I'm just going to simplify this. Just you move anything, any piece of terrain on the table, you can move it. Okay. And so what happened is we've got a couple games go in and then uh, my gaming partner, Dan Cullinan, goes, can I cast Move Earth on that pond, shift it under your army and just drown them automatically? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, oh. Hadn't, no, hadn't thought about <laughs> that, right? That would, and we, we chatted about it, you know, politely as we do there. And we're like, well, we, we agree that would probably be a little overpowered to just like automatically wipe out an arbitrarily sized army because you're moving a, a pond underneath it. And the answer is only allow it on prominences. Right, just like right. I said to begin with, right? Well, so now yeah. we only use it on things that are sticking up above ground level, specifically the hills and the vegetation, and the prominences. And it's been in there all along. And I didn't notice how incredibly important that is to avoid the the shoving shoving ponds and drowning your army problem and then on the other hand you know lower water what's interesting about that well 
Well, now lower water is the only thing that can affect the pond, right? Because, because <laughs> of that, right? Because of that, now right. lower water now lower water can you know affects half of the things and move earth affects the other half of the things, and it just works. It just works so nicely as complements to each other. And I never knew that, frankly, until you know just a month or two ago. Fascinating. Uh, when you when you and I were talking about this, I was also picking out that there are some magic items uh, in D anD D that. Uh, are a little bit of a head scratcher for me when playing normal D anD D, but then when you start to remember the the war game roots and and how they might work in a war game, like it makes a lot of sense. And and I hit this with uh, anyone who's poked onto my blog at all knows that there's a there's some there's some uh, software up there that I've that I've released, including a, a a character generator for OED. And when I originally wrote the character generator, I said, okay, high level characters should have magic items. There's some percent chance that they have them, and I just put like the entire list. Of magic items from OD&D in there, and um, started coming up with some odd ones, and and it was especially because I was using this to generate characters to use as pre-gens for uh, games at conventions. The the funny thing is that at a convention game, the player is going to look at their pre-gen and they're going to assume that all the all choices were made intentionally, right? Rather, which I, I'm telling you right now is not true. They were made randomly by a <laughs> computer generator, right? Um, and you've got characters with like a horn of blasting, and who's ever used a horn of blasting in their D and D game, right? Like, I actually ended up removing it from the list. I was just like, oh, I'm just not going to deal with this because everyone looks at that and goes, "Why do I have a horn of blasting? Why do I have drums of panic? What? Why? Why would I? Why? What is? What possible scenario am I going to be in and exploring a dungeon where this is going to be a useful item for me? Sounds powerful, but what's the point?" Right. And, and the fun, you know, and you, you twist it around and the, the, the single most powerful thing in the war game is the morale mechanics. Uh, in particular, uh, for us, uh, it comes into play with the, uh, the classic dragon fear, right? Dragons uh, casting fear automatically in uh, original D&D or a chain mail or, you know, first edition. Uh, that's killer. That's brutal. Brutal when you can just automatically force a morale check. Um, is, a, is a brutally powerful ability. Um, and yeah, drums of panic look weird in other circumstances. Yeah. That's it. By the way, I gotta, I gotta praise you, Paul, for the great, great observation that uh, players assume that the magic items were put there for a specific plot reason in this adventure. And it's a mistake <laughs> that I always make as someone who's very committed to the random tables. Uh, I, I run into that over and over again. I never correct it. I just keep banging my head uh, against that sp specific wall. And that's, a, that's a great observation to be careful about that when you are making pre-gens. Yeah. I mean, what I ended up doing is I have kind of a standard set of pre-gens now that I just use for every game. Um, it's the same characters. I have them at a couple different levels so that I can play different level ranges with them. It's nice because I get used to them as DM, so I'm like less surprised at the table by what stuff players come up with. because The characters are always the same. Um, and, um, and it, again, and it affords me the ability to sit down at the table and say, no, no, it's a standard set of characters I use for every adventure. So, you know, all the equipment is going to make sense for any given adventure. Right. Right. Um, Which I kind of like, I actually kind of like it being little. ambiguous like that. I like it being yeah. ambiguous about the, the players. It's going to be on your, it's, the onus will be on you to make these things useful. They're, they aren't, they aren't keys to put in specific locks. And yeah, I do like that as well. Yeah, yeah. So 
how do we resolve this, Dan? Like, it, it seems to me, right? Okay, so let's say you're playing an OED game and you say, great, I, I love that we can spin up a, a Book of War game at any point to resolve a large-scale combat. And we do have these spells and magic items that are useful in those contexts, and it's cool. But, like, so it, does that mean just leave them in there and then don't worry about the fact that you've got characters running around with... I feel like you're still going to have players who are going to scratch their heads looking at the spell list and go, like, move Earth. Why would I take this? And you have to say, like, well, in some cases... Some unknown arbitrary point in the future, maybe we're going to play a war game where maybe that's useful. Uh, that's that's an ongoing experiment. It's a great question. It's kind of for me. It's kind of an ongoing experiment. And uh, you know, I've been running uh, some uh, high level wizard arena action recently to try to you know explore those issues, particularly around the high level spells and the high level play. And, you know, I'll say, uh, you know, someone, our friend Lauren used Move Earth in the role-playing situation a couple weeks back. And there was an enemy wizard poised on the edge of a cliff, you know, just out of range, had a, had a elemental. They were, they were controlling other people. And so um, I couldn't get to them. And so Lauren's solution was I cast Move Earth and just bring the cliff towards me. And the half of the whole, <laughs> half of the whole, the uh, 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 table, just like okay, great, and just, just grinding <laughs> over the server, just bring the whole thing right towards me, please, and bring them in range. And everybody was surprised; they're not used to seeing that. That was great, and yep. the enemy wizards like, yep. oh no, I'm in the wrong place now. It started started running like they're on an escalator in the wrong direction. <laughs> That's, right. brilliant. That's brilliant. So, right. So I, it's it's action that I hadn't seen before, and uh, uh, you know, kudos kudos to our friend Lauren for coming up with that creative use. And I'm like, okay, here's and here's here's a moment where Move Earth was surprising and cool. <laughs> Nice. Okay. Okay. So, so is is that the argument that then just leave them in and and it's on the players to figure out a, a useful use case for them? Yeah, I think if I'm you know if I'm leaning into uh, the the end game of you're going to be <clears throat> building domains and a castle and hiring mercenaries and armies, I think the implication is that yes, this will feed into um, you know domain level play at some point, uh, and it and it should be there particularly at the, at the tip top level. Um, and it'll give some nuance, right? Uh, so a, a dungeon adventure will have a different, different texture to it than when you're adventuring outdoors, uh, leading, leading a large group of people. And I like, I like keeping the players uncomfortable, right? So when they, they get comfortable, the man to man state, all of a sudden here's the outdoor situation and they have to be creative in different ways. And I, I kind of don't mind that. <coughs> Certainly, not okay. everything's going to be useful all the time. Right? You're, the magic, the magic items on your pre-gen um, sheets is is a great example of mm, not everything's going to be useful today. You're going to be yeah. going to stay on your toes and 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 determine when it will be useful. But I guess I would make the argument though that like you know if you're using the war game in this way to complement your your D your normal D and D campaign and resolve the big battles that the the opportunity to do so i think is is small right over the course of that entire campaign we did it twice and that's like a many year campaign twice we came up with a situation where we went okay we're gonna play a war game uh that's super fun it was great and i'm not saying that you shouldn't do it but 
Like, at what point does this become maybe a bit like, say, um, jousting, where you as DM have run through it so much that you're like an expert jouster, and now the players are going to start metagaming that and say, like, okay, well, if anyone ever, you know, challenges you to a joust, kill them on sight! um it's a um it's a good uh it's a good i'm I'm so glad you brought that example because i was for what as in i apologize everybody (laughs) but just as an aside uh the official publication of my academic paper about jousting was officially published uh on friday actually and it is in uh, the uh, computers and games Thank you so much. The Computers and Games International Conference published by Springer. It's LNCS 13865 is the conference proceedings publication. So I was pretty, I was, uh, so I was pretty happy just Friday actually having been informed about that. So yeah, so jousting. Um, possibly not the simplest thing. <laughs> probably not, probably not some, a great example of something that the average player can't immediately pick up and interface with, frankly. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm also happy to not spring that on my players. Um, I think, you know, it's a good point to think about. And I think, you know, a a thread on the same point is that, you know, the, the number of pieces in a standard D and D encounter have, have shrunk over time, right? So when original D&D came out, the standard, you know, man or goblin encounter size was 40 to 400. And, mm, uh, you know, point. one of, yeah. right, your primary ability score charisma said right on page five or whatever, like you can have five or 10 or 18 or whatever it is, 12 uh, henchmen, right? And so you're going to have, with all the characters all together, you're possibly going to have, you know, dozens of non-player characters on your side. And if you look at, um, you know, Arneson's Temple the Frog, you know, the first level has thousands of thousands of enemies in it. Like, you know, area one, 200, you know, men. And area two is here's a barracks with 500 men and 600 frogs and stuff like that. And over time, you know, so you you had this level of focus that was kind of wargamey, even mm-hmm. to begin with. And over time, obviously, I think people have decided that it's it's more interesting to kind of inhabit one single person a little bit more closely. And the number of player characters has, has reduced. The number of people that you're controlling as, as the player has gone from a bunch to basically one. The number of monsters that's going to jump you has gone from, you know, 200 to 10. Um, and so it, it is possible that these mechanics... Um, that were, you know, coming out of wargaming that made more sense in original D&D where you always had lots of people might, might make, might look a little bit more odd to a new player that's going, I, I assume I'm just playing one single person the end. Um, and that's part of the evolution of the game over time. That's, that's, that's a really fascinating point. Um, I think it is, it is interesting to, to, to look at, um, not, not just, how the players and the player characters inhabit, but just the encounter size, right? Just encounter size to see, to see yeah. how that has shrunk. Yeah. Um, was it a gradual thing, Dan, or was there like an addition where they were just like, nope, no more 400 orcs. Like when, when did, when did we see that go away? Yeah. Uh, 
Um, I, it was kind of gradualish. I think you had the 40 to 400 and then, um, you know, Arneson in first fantasy campaign is saying, well, you know, you probably that's the layer. And uh, let's assume that maybe a third, maybe third to a half is outside in the wilderness. And you're going to you're going to run into each part separately. Um, mm-hmm. And then a lot of people, well, that's the layer number. Uh, it's, it's other batches will be smaller. And then uh, BX, you know, specifically reduced uh, reduced the numbers quite a bit um, in the in the basic D and D game, which which kind of made sense. And uh, you know, on that point, one of the things that um, the war game has has pointed out to me was oh, and the great thanks, <laughs> William put the link to the to the he found, William found the academic paper that's amazing and put it in the chat. Thank you so much. There's a link right there if anybody wants to see the um, the abstract there. Um, and um, uh, what what so uh, it it highlighted how important what we call the sweep attacks are right for quite some right. time. I played original D&D and I didn't honor what we call sweep attacks. Like an eighth level fighter gets eight attacks per turn against one hit die creatures. And um, what I what I realized is that without that, right, without that hyper number of attacks, high level fighters aren't really interesting. High level fighters really don't get much accomplished if you just drop them in the, the middle of a hundred person army and they just get one attack per round. It really doesn't accomplish much. And you need the you need the sweep attacks for them to have something interesting at that scale, and to uh, remain of interest when you've got the wizards throwing fireballs around. So that was a major change to my the way that I run original D and D just in the last year or two was that it's, it's that's got to be there. It's a major way that fighters interface with those large numbers, and in the BX edition, right? That's the first edition that just totally yanked that out. Right. And, and we've, mm-hmm. we've seen Netzers say, I don't think it's necessary. I don't like it. I think it's unfair to the monsters. And so in basic D&D, that was yanked out, um, and, um, which, is, which is in sync with reducing the number of monsters. But then it's fighters so fascinating. aren't fascinating anymore. It's so fascinating, I think, because like, I feel like that's something that, that players of more modern versions of D&D would be surprised about if they did sit down and play a game like Pool of Radiance, which you've been playing on Elder Times, that you get these encounters. And I think it even surprised you the first time it happened, where you're like, okay, you know, five goblins, six goblins, and then there was like, no, here's here's 50. <laughs> right? Like, well, yes. Whoa, that is a lot, right? Right. But yeah, that's what the game becomes about, is, is where do you place your fireballs? How do you get your fighters into sweep territory? How do you provoke morale checks? And that's, those are all tactics that, I mean, I guess the fireball tactic is still around, and that's, that's basically it. Yeah, yeah. Fire, fireball mm-hmm. is very powerful. <laughs> and, yeah. and it always has been, yeah. And that's another yeah. thing is we've, you know, we've been able to dig into, because there was this language, I, I find it so interesting that the language has still okay. been copied forward even into fifth edition, basically, of the, the caster fireball has to... State a range is a state a range is what it is, and that entirely comes out of the the fact that was the the mechanic in chainmail that you'd use as the player to mm-hmm. estimate how far away the target was. And I so we've been playing with like that with Book of War. I find that really um, a fascinating mechanic that the player themselves has to guess how far apart you are from your target. 
Hmm. Um, we the, we started, and then I had an alternative because Dan um, pointed out an issue of if you have wizard on wizard fight, right? The first person's at a big disadvantage because you're going to call it, you're going to measure. Oh well, obviously you miss. But then having measured it, the second wizard knows how far it is. And the second wizard can go, I just saw you measure it and it's 18 inches away. So I'm going to call 18 inches. And we ran into that with a with a wizard versus wizard duel. Um, and so now we've swapped in an alternative where we are rolling dice, which itself comes out of an option in Chainmail. But um, there is there's some parity there in, in real world, right? If you assume that lightning bolts and fireballs are just substitutions for cannons and, and trebuchets. That like, yeah, ranging shots were a thing, right? Yep. Oh, okay. We took a shot. We did our best guess. Hmm, it hit there. Okay, great. You know, now we can adjust. That's totally true. I I that that's totally true. Dan's counter argument is that the other side doesn't know, right? So on, on our mm. side, we know what angle or how much powder we put in for this shot and we can adjust. But the other side won't know wouldn't know what angle we have or be able to use that. So yep. he, um, I think initially I made the argument you just made, Paul, and then um, yeah. Gamma Dan said that. And I'm like, that's not a bad point. That's a pretty good point. I feel like it, it only occurred, right? It, it wouldn't have ever occurred to me if we didn't have a wizard versus wizard duel. It didn't seem, yep. it didn't seem like a big problem right up until that point. And then we were like, yeah, that actually, that actually becomes a little troublesome. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So uh, let me let me sum up here. There's so some things as you've dived into the wargaming side of it that have come back and reemerged in your D and D game. It sounds like sweep attacks. Uh, yep. Sounds yep. like uh, guessing guessing range, or at least you know that's something that's come back and you've had to tune guessing range yep. on on big uh, area effect spells. Um, yep. And then. Um, what was the other one that I wanted to that I wanted uh, to bring morale, up? Morale, right? My my morale mechanic is is what I use yeah. there. My sweep attack mechanic is what I use there. Uh, I use variations for throwing fireballs in D anD D with the same dice mm -hmm. that we that we're using at the moment. Great, great. What points. about what about size of encounter? Are you finding yourself wanting to go back and have those big two hundred to four hundred encounters a lot? I, I, I want to lean into that, you know, par partly because if I say that I'm playing original D&D, I don't want to have to go back and rewrite every monster, right? If you, like, right. Th there's actually a point. It's not, it's not a terrible design decision on the part of, like, basic D&D to, A, cut the sweep attack rule, which is, like, one less thing to have to remember, frankly, um and reduce the monster sizes for focus isn't terrible but if i say that i'm playing original DD, like for me i didn't want to have to go in and scratch out the number appearing on every single monster in the book and continue to edit it forever so mm -hmm. i've personally decided to embrace <laughs> the large numbers and the sweep attacks and the high level play and if i you know if i if i take arneson's advice and go okay well maybe maybe a third of them are wandering outside i might do that but I, my players will are still apt to be jumped by a hundred orcs. Nice, yeah. Which so get ready I mean, for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, and do you, do you do you adjust that for for low levels? I guess that the, like what immediately comes to my mind now as we're talking about this is like, is this why 
when you look at BX, the basic game is always in the dungeon and you don't get to come out into the wilderness until later because, frankly, you had better be fifth level or higher if you're going to face the numbers you're going to see in the wilderness. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think that was the theme, right? I think that was the theme from the get-go is and, and it's and it's awkward frankly it's it's honestly awkward in original dnd you have the, the main monster table and you have these large numbers appearing and you have these treasure types and then there's an asterisk footnote that says all this is only for the outdoors right and i'm like right. but the, the name of the game literally the name of the game is dungeon that's the first word in the in the <laughs> game dungeons and the monster list isn't set up to to establish either numbers or treasures or anything in the dungeon and then the other <laughs> And then the other word is dragons, and you're probably not going to see that until you're super high level. And really, all that leaves is the ampersand. <laughs> so admittedly, it's a little awkward. I'm not going to lie. Oh, you know, let me pull up. The, so our, our viewer, uh, uh, Mahanan, has had a couple really good comments that I really, really like here. Um, in the last couple of minutes. And so one of them, um, they've said uh, Warhammer used to have that same guess the range mechanic wep for weapons like artillery and indirect fire. And Warhammer over the editions wound up removing it from the rules about 10 years or so ago. And I, it's interesting that we're in the same path of rediscovering this evolution. So D&D uh, &D had that initially for the fireballs. I have tried using that in book of war i thought it would work well warhammer used that initially and um you know for for a number of reasons partly to interface with brand new players you wind up replacing it with dice or something like that um uh, uh and so it's interesting that we we do rediscover it's so close to being good rediscover the little bit of weakness in a rule like that that um mm -hmm. Is parallel, and the other thing that I was thinking this morning about Warhammer is flight, right? Aerial units. Chainmail has two very short little lines about possibly using aerial units. Swords and spells, nothing. There's ab zero anything about flyer units in mm. the swords and spell games. Just doesn't deal with it at all whatsoever. Um, and the evolution in Warhammer there is, again, you know, Dave Arneson had these complicated rules he called Fight in the Skies, which or he called them Battle in the Skies, which was based on Mike Carr's World War I uh, fighter game, uh, um, Fight in the Skies, and has a whole very, you know, all the maneuvers you could possibly do with World War One biplanes is what's what's the the what's the speed, the acceleration, the slowdown, the minimum speed, how fast you can go up, can you dive down, how far do you turn, can you barrel roll, can you do this maneuver, can you do that maneuver, and initially, uh, you know, D and D and Warhammer both had these rules for aerial units where you would do that, you would track their altitude up and down, how far mm -hmm. could you turn side to side, all that kind of stuff like that. I had mass aerial units, I think, in season two of Book of War, I think. And just a big pain in the ass, just an overwhelming pain in the ass. The units were too powerful. They were too expensive. They broke the pricing algorithm. We, it was, it was, it was um, uh, over-dominant, right? It would, now the argument was always, can you, can you turn five degrees with the aerial unit, because then you're going to wipe out my whole army. If you can't, I'm going to win, right? It just, it, it, the entire game just came to, down to these kind of arguments. And again, Warhammer took this same exact path of squeezing that out of the system. And as of, 
so they simplified it and they simplified and they simplified it. And as of sixth edition, they don't track things in the air at all. They, they basically flight flight became just a jumping power. Is every turn you start on the on the ground, you end on the ground, and it's basically a big jumping power. And it's funny how all these war games took that same path of squeezing out the complication of the the flight rules because they kind of they're they're such a pain in the ass. Um, yep. And you can see it in first edition D and D, and it's basically not there anymore. Hmm. Fascinating. I mean, that's certainly what I remember when I was playing Warhammer of it just being like this big. You know, almost short range teleport kind of thing of like, yep, you can go this very big distance and ignore the terrain in between, but you're still on the ground at the end. It's like, oh, feels weird. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we still have flyers in Book of War for solos, right? So for so for so the uh, we'll probably have like one one figure, right? A one dragon or one lich riding a wyvern, um, and that's been okay. Like that's been working okay. It's powerful, but the whole mm-hmm. game doesn't entirely just become about that. Um, trying to have trying to have mass flyers wound up really not making sense, being over dominant, and that I did I did actually remove. Interesting. Hmm. Um, what what else? I guess what other what other are there other things that uh, working on the on the war game have uh, altered how you end up playing playing the 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 original D and D game. You know, th- so now I'm getting into more. I'm getting in more details, but there was a, I thought there was a really interesting thing that came up about two weeks ago. And thanks to Dan for playtesting this, and thanks to uh, Julian for commenting on this. Is dragon? I've got I've got a single solo adult dragon, and <laughs> we get in a fight with another solo unit, and now we we zoom in. And we just start playing D and D. We grab our D twenties. Goes very fast with you know original D and D mechanics, mm-hmm. and we're going to go mm-hmm. back and forth. And so I had a dragon, and uh, Gamma Dan had a hero, uh, a superhero, and a griffin. And obviously, yeah. I breathe fire on them, right? Yep. And it's it's three rounds per turn is the you know is the standard in you know swords and spells and chainmail and battle system and book of war. We all do this. So three three rounds per turn. So I breathe fire on them, and I you know more than halfway kill them. Round two. Well, I want to breathe fire on them again. And in original D&D, of course, uh, the dragon can only breathe fire three times per day. Okay. But in addition to that, there's all, you're also supposed to roll to see from round to round whether they breathe, right? And you're familiar with this from BX, I'm sure, Paul, because that's it's in there as well. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to roll two dice, and it's about 50-50 whether they breathe or whether they do this, the somewhat less dramatic claw-claw bite attack. And so... We, we had a debate. We had a debate about whether we should be rolling. And my, and, you know, of course, I had the, at the moment, I had the dragon. I was like, well, you know, everything else as the player, I just get to decide what the unit does. I, I always thought that that role was like the mercurial nature of dragons. Maybe they're just not making a good decision or maybe they think that they can overwhelm the opponent and don't have to breathe or something like that. But here I'm controlling everything, so I should just be able to say yes to it. And, you know, in in hindsight, the texture of that is if I can just breathe, breathe, breathe round after round, I'm going to kill anything. Yep. And so we, we thought about it afterwards and we thought it would just be kind of more interesting to get your dragon in the fight like that and not be entirely sure whether they're going to use their nuke option or not. And maybe we can reinterpret that as 
maybe not the mercurial nature of dragons, but maybe maybe it's like a recharging. Maybe once they take one breath, maybe they have to warm up the fires again before they can do it again. And weirdly, that winds up being the fifth edition rule, right? That's how fifth yeah, I was, edition I was does just gonna say, That's exactly the how fifth edition does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. I never thought about that before. I, I always interpreted this as a behavioral thing. And if I'm in the mind of the dragon, I get to decide. But maybe if you reinterpret it the same way fifth edition is, like that's what we've decided to actually play it. And we will be rolling to see if the dragon breathes. And it's this, it's this kind of delightful, different interpretation of that rule that's been in the book since 1974 that I never thought about. And I actually really like doing it that way now. Hmm. I mean, I, I like that explanation for the, the, you know, why would you have to roll bait to determine whether or not the dragon's going to breathe? Um, I like it being more of a physical thing rather than a, than a, a decision point thing. Um, because I do, I like you, I think I, I agree that otherwise it's just, well, it's just going to breathe all the time. It's going to breathe the maximum amount of possible right off the bat yeah. every time. Right. Um, right. And uh, and I and based as we established in the morale discussion, I like when there is a decision and a, a behavioral decision to make. I do want to inhabit the monster, and I do want to do that, which is why I don't want to roll for morale. I want to make choices about when my character is going to run away. Um, so it is nice. I I approve, and 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 I definitely enjoyed the couple of games of fifth edition I've run with a dragon. I really actually really enjoy that because it becomes this big thing. I roll out in the open in the beginning of like, all right, let's see if I can breathe. I really hope I can breathe this round, right? And I roll the die and I go, ah, darn it. Okay, well, now let me adjust my tactics because I guess my breath weapon's not ready yet. That's a good piece of drama, right? That's a dramatic, that's a dramatic gameplay. And I like those moments of high, you know, make or break drama. Um, And that, in in my opinion, that makes for a good game. And for me, you know, learning about morale and realizing that at least in, you know, Book of War and the War Games, that's the highest moment of drama is you, you have a conflict and we're eliminating some figures and you're fighting and it rises to this climax. And then there's going to be one single roll of the dice that determines whether the unit lives or dies. Right? It's going to bam, it's going to be decided. If they fail it, they're off the table, we're onto something else. And um, you know, realizing that you know, morale is both, it's, it's one of these wonderful game mechanics that's both realistic, both echoes what happens in the real world and makes for good dramatic gameplay pacing um, is, and, and realizing that, that that's the key thing in the war game is the morale rolls was, was important for me, um, for me in both, in both circumstances. Well, then we are just about out of time here. So I have to ask for uh, your final thoughts on commingling. Uh, uh, D&D or adventure fantasy tabletop games with small groups and uh, large-scale uh, war games? I mean, at the very minimum, it, it deepens your... If you're digging into the war game, like with Book of War or whatever war game you prefer, deepens your understanding where D&D comes from. There's a, for me, there was a lot in uh, first edition or original D&D that when I first got... you know, Even first edition was cryptic was confusing, was I, why is this mechanic here? I don't understand what this, what this is trying to do. And when I saw it played out in the war game and it could be spells, it could be morale rules, it could be a bunch of other stuff, it suddenly clicked and it made sense to me why, you know, what this is doing in the world uh, in this particular case. And so at, at a bare minimum, you'll understand uh, classic D&D a lot better digging into the war game. And for me, it's, it's improved my game and in some cases, I've rediscovered 
some of the changes that Gygax made in first edition, right? Going from zero edition to first edition, I'm kind of rediscovering why those changes were made in the D&D system. Um, and in some cases, I'm making the same decision. And in some ways, I'm making slightly different decisions that I, that I personally think are better for me. Um, so I, I get so much value and, um, you know, so much enrichment out of playing both sides of the game. I definitely enjoy uh, when when the game explodes out into a war game. I very much enjoy that Book of War has made it easy to do that with OD and D. So thank you, Dan, for that creation. Um, and I would I would argue that uh, for folks looking at this, if you're going to run an OD and D game, um, you know, and and you you want to embrace this, like think about your setting up front. This 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 was sort of the, the moment that this how this how to bring this all around for me was you should be playing your D&D campaigns in a setting that is war-torn, right? You should be playing, it. your setup should be, there are multiple factions that live in this larger world who are at war with each other. And I feel like that um, makes, you know, just makes it much more enjoyable. That's, that's that campaign I ran, I, I don't know if it was intentional, but I started out with this idea of you're in this kingdom and the control of the kingdom is currently a question mark. Right? The, the, the old king has died and he's got two sons and they're fighting over who gets to rule. Um, and I think it's it's really nice. And it doesn't have to be that, right? Have, you know, you can say that, the, yeah, there's there's you live in this place with adjacent to, you know, uh, the forest where the orcs live and they're they're constantly invading or whatever it is, something that something that's going to allow you to have opportunity I think, for uh, integrating the war game, I think, is valuable. It's a great point, and I would also add: think about the scale of that, because you know all these games, swords and spells, and D and D are set up at a particular scale. That if the forces are in the hundreds, then player characters can engage usefully. If the forces are in the thousands or ten thousands, which is historically a thing, player characters can't have any effect on that. They're going to get overwhelmed. They can't actually they can't actually engage with that. So it's very easy, I think, in world building to say, there's a giant empire and the overlord of the entire world fields an army of a million men. But your player characters can't have anything to do with that. They're not gonna have any effect on that. So if you have something that's more fractured and broken up and like small baronies and warlords and something like that, where the armies are like, you know, hundreds or, you know, something like that, the player characters will be able to engage with that. And I feel like it's important to set that scale to begin with and not just go emperor of the world because uh, that won't really probably affect your D&D game much. Nice, nice. Good good, good advice there, Dan. Really nice. Uh, viewers, if you have thoughts on this, uh, cases where you have commingled a tabletop role-playing game with a war game or lessons learned from uh, war gaming that uh, expanded or changed how you uh, tackle uh, Dungeons & Dragons, leave us a comment here in the YouTube video comment section. Uh, tell us, give us your anecdotes. Uh, give us something to chew on, and maybe that will uh, appear in a future episode of Wandering DMs. Yeah, we'll definitely look forward to that. And, uh, you know, maybe your comments will have something to do with uh, the movie 300, which, of course, I have seen and I have thoughts about it. Maybe that's a different episode. So for now, remember, <laughs> you probably don't have 300 player characters now, do you? Um, but, of course, remember that you can like and follow and subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and GitHub and also TikTok. And we do have the handle wandering DMs on all those sites. So please look for us there and you'll get updates on upcoming shows.
If you would rather listen to this show in audio-only podcast format, perhaps while you're uh, on the commute or out mowing the grass or whatever it is, uh, you could do so. Those podcasts are available at our website at wanderingdms.com. Also through various podcast sites such as Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. If you are listening to this show right now on one of those sites and it gives you the opportunity to do so, please rate and review our show there. That helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And of course, every week, thanks to our patrons who support the show. And if you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms. And even our $1 tier gets you access to our Discord server. Like Paul said at the top of the show, we'll be there in about one hour to continue the conversation with our live video chat. I will be there in about 10 minutes to continue the conversation. Yes. Approximately <laughs> 10 turns in chainmail. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, uh, upcoming, uh, I'll be back uh, Thursday at 8.30 p.m. Uh, Paul mentioned I'm still playing through the AD&D uh, Pool of Radiance game with the, the giant mobs, giant mobs of monsters that I'm hacking through, be they bugbears or Eddins or, or, or armies of undead is what I was confronted with mm -hmm. per the text last time. So I'll be back there uh, this week and the following week as well. Maybe, maybe I can wrap up Pool of Radiance in the next two weeks. Maybe. Probably not. Um, but uh, I'll be there. And, uh, of course, Paul and I will be back next Sunday. So don't forget, we're live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.